Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you this morning, and Lord, how good it is to to gather again in your name and to be encouraged, Lord, even over the internet like this, Lord, to be encouraged by your Word and, and knowing, Lord, that you're in this with us. That though we're running the race, Lord, you are, are the author and the finisher of our faith. And the one, as we fix our eyes upon you, you're leading us to, to the place that you have for us, for that finish line, Lord. And I pray that we'd run, Lord, with, with, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, pressing on, knowing, Lord, that you'll finish what you've begun in us. Lord, thank you this morning. And as we gather again in your word, we just ask you to bless our time together. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Good to be with you guys. And as you're turning in your Bibles this morning, let's go to Luke chapter 2. To Luke chapter 2. You know, I was sharing with the group this morning that um, it's, again, I, I mentioned over the past few weeks, no accident that we're in the Gospel of Luke, and there is no better place for us to be right now than in a Gospel. And I, I say that because I'm looking around the world today, and I see a hopeless a hopelessness setting into people's hearts. And, and it's, it's not just in the world that doesn't know Jesus. I see hopelessness setting into the hearts of God's people, and that is not a place that we need to be. And, and the gospel gives us hope. It's all about the hope that Christ has brought to us through the work that he did upon the cross. And, and, and not only that, it points us to what he's going to do for us one day, the, the kingdom that will one day be established. But we can have hope. But I would also tell you that we're in this in this time because God wants us to be able to communicate this hope to others. You know, I, I posted a meme this morning, and again, I shared it with the group outside, and I'll just summarize it for you. And, and I think it's important. I do think the Lord put it on my heart to, to share it, and, and it's just been building it in my own heart that, you know, our testimony, our witness for the Lord is established in the storms. It is. It's established in the storms. What, what, what will be remembered about us as Christians will be how we responded in the midst of the storm. And I sometimes wonder as I, I look at stuff online and, and even things I've found myself drawn into, will people remember us because of our spiritualized politics or, you know, our pseudo ideas about prophecy or, um, you know, all sorts of other things? Or are they going to remember us for the gospel? Because the world is watching right now. The world is watching the body of Christ right now. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what are they going to remember about us when this is all said and done? You see, once the testimony is established, it's established. It's awfully hard to go back and change it later if we felt we did something that we shouldn't have in the midst of it and conveyed something wrong. The world is watching us. Now, some are watching us to criticize us. Some are watching us to throw rocks at us. But some are watching us because... They lack hope. And, and for years, we've talked about the hope we have in Jesus. 
Are we communicating hope to people? Are we doing that? What will they remember about us? You know, I remember when I was in the Army, I was um, stationed at Fort Benning at the time, and change of command's a big deal in the Army when companies or battalions change command. And one of our company commanders in the battalion, I was the executive officer of the battalion, and they were changing command. And I sat outside, we were sitting outside on the bleachers, and, and a terrible storm came up in the middle of that, in the middle of that ceremony. And people started running for cover. I mean, it was lightning. It was not a great place to be. And it was getting nasty out and, and everybody was running for cover. But these, these troops that were changing command, they couldn't. They were stuck in it. They had to stay out there. And I was sitting on the bleachers. And unlike a lot of other people, I didn't run away. I just sat there and I fixed my gaze. And it was to the point that the, the water was just running off the brim of my hat, just, just running right off of it. But I didn't flinch. I sat through the whole thing. And after it was over, the company commander that had changed command came up to me afterwards and he said, I'm going to remember this all my life. He said, what I'm going to remember is what I just saw you do while we we're all standing out here, you know, not knowing what to do. And we saw you not move. You just sat on that bleacher without even flinching as though it wasn't even raining. And he said, boy, that really encouraged us when we were standing out here in the midst of this thing. You know, I share that with you to say this. The world is watching us right now. And what are they seeing? What is it we're communicating? What are we saying to people on social media? What are we saying to people that we're meeting on the streets? What are we saying to our neighbors by the way we're living? What are we communicating? Because it's going to stick and it's going to be remembered. Are we communicating hope or are we communicating a whole lot of other things? I hope like me that your heart is that in the end, what they would remember is our witness for the gospel. That they would remember the hope that we communicated that we had in Jesus in the midst of this. Look, I, I firmly believe, I still do, even today, this storm's going to pass. I don't know how quickly it's going to pass. My favorite saying is, this thing's going to pass. It's going to pass like a kidney stone, but it's going to pass. You know, it's painful. Look, we'd, we'd all lie to say this is, not, this is not what we're used to. But the Lord's given us an opportunity to be light and darkness. He's given us an opportunity to share the hope of the gospel with a world that's desperate for hope. What will they remember about us when it's all said and done? I hope that they'll remember the gospel. I hope that they'll remember Jesus. And I hope they'll remember a people who had their faith firmly planted in Jesus and the hope that he had, has given to us that we've shared with them. The good news of the gospel. And so it's no accident we're in the book of Luke. Let's turn this morning in Luke chapter 2. Let's pick up this morning in verse 39, and let's look at the hope that we have. Look at verse 39. So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now, so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. 
So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you this morning. And now as we turn our hearts to the good news of your gospel, to the hope found in it, Lord, I pray that you would teach us, grow us, and instill your hope in our hearts so that, Lord, we can impart that hope to others. That in this storm in which we're now walking through, we could be your vessel of hope, sharing hope with others, Lord, sharing the good news of Jesus with others and what he's done for us. And that, Lord, when the storm passes, that there would be many who have found hope in you. And that, Lord, we would be remembered, our testimony would be remembered as being about you and the good news of your gospel, of what you, Jesus, have done for all of us. And so, Lord, open our hearts this morning and pour that hope of the gospel into our hearts once again. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. I do have to tell you this is one good thing about opening here and praying inside the building is that I don't have an ant on my glasses. I had a red ant on my glasses in the middle of it this morning, and I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't want to like distract everybody, but it ended up doing that. Anyways, be that as it may, let's pick up this morning. Looking at verse 39, I know we left off there last week. We we had covered that for a moment, but I want to go back there. Verse 39, so when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth, and the child grew, became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And so Mary and Joseph, uh, being the devout Jews and followers of the Lord that they were, they fulfill the obligation of the law in regard to their child, and then they return home to Nazareth. And we talked about the obligation that they were fulfilling that came with his circumcision and such last week. But as they settled in there, we're told that Jesus grows and he becomes strong in spirit and filled with wisdom and in the Lord's grace that was fully upon him. Literally, the Lord's grace means the Lord's favor that was fully upon him. Now, people often wonder. At what age Jesus knew he was God? And maybe you've asked that question. I know some people here have asked me, when do you think Jesus knew he was God? Well, the answer to that question is clear. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know because the scriptures don't tell us. But what we do know is that passages like these do reveal some things about him. He was growing spiritually. We know that. And that most likely, as he grew like that, he was steadily becoming more and more aware of who he really was. As one commentator tells us, Jesus grew and developed as other children, yet his spiritual development is here first noted. We might say that Jesus was aware of his identity and his calling as appropriate to his age development. At age five, he did not have the understanding of a 30-year-old, but had the greatest capacity for understanding appropriate for a five-year-old. Now, In the next section of our text that we're going to get to this morning, we're going to find that by the age of 12, whatever limited understanding Jesus had before that appears to be completely cleared up as by age 12, he knew precisely who he was and why he was here and what he was to be doing. But up until then, we don't know because the scriptures are rather silent and, and we need to be careful in that regard to speculate. 
People often wonder, too, and that goes along with it, about the events of Jesus' childhood. You know, they, they want to know, well, what do you think he was like as a kid? What do you think he did? You know, and as a result of that curiosity, there have been a lot of people who've produced all kinds of writings about him that are speculative about what he was like as a child. As another commentator tells us, to satisfy this curiosity— Men wrote their own so-called infancy gospels. They contained spectacular and silly miracles like Jesus talking from the manger, healing a man made into a mule by a spell, bringing clay birds to life with a clap of his hands, healing people with a, a sprinkling with his old bath water, and on and on and on and on and on. Yet where the scripture hath no tongue, we must have no ears. I like that statement. Where the Scripture hath no tongue, we must have no ears. <laughs> you know, today we would do well to, not just in regard to these the early life of Jesus, but on many things, I'm finding more and more of God's people feel compelled to, to, to fill in the blanks where the Scriptures are silent. I, I see that a lot with the prophetic today. This need to go beyond what the scriptures teach to fill in the blanks with every event that unfolds in our world. Look, I'm not saying ignore the events that are unfolding in our world. We should not. And many of them can be linked to things in the scriptures, but we need to be very careful about how we're defining things when the scripture hath no tongue. When the scripture is silent on the issue, we're not to have ears and to fill in the blanks on those things. And, and here, when we deal with Jesus's early childhood, while it may be fun to speculate, we don't know what he was like as a child. We don't know all of the things he did, and, and we don't know because the scriptures are silent about these years, and so we should not speculate when the scriptures are silent. What we do know is that as he grew, and this we do know, and we're on safe ground, he became strong in spirit, he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. But other than that, we can just assume that he had a fairly typical childhood, making mud pies in the dirt with his friends, you know, playing the Jewish version of hide-and-seek and tag, just, just a normal childhood, you know? We can make that assumption, but beyond that, we should let silence of the Scriptures be met with silence. But despite the silence, we do know who he is. We already know as believers who Jesus is because we now look back on history. We now look back upon who he is. We know. We know who he is and why he came and what he would become and, and what he would do and what he still is doing and what he will yet one day do. We know that because the scriptures show us and history reveals it to us. And that's really, to be honest with you, all we need to know. Amen? It's all we need to know. Well, look on. In verse 41... His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. So the, the law required all Jewish males over age 21 to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to attend three major annual feasts. There were more than three, but there were three that they were required to go to. And it was the men that were required, not the ladies. The men were required. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 16 and verse 16 gives us the, those feasts. Deuteronomy 16 and verse 16. 
Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. Number one, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Number two, at the Feast of Weeks. Number three, and at the Feast of Tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So there are your three feasts that they were required to go to. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was an eight-day feast that was combined with the Passover. The Passover was the first day, and then there was the seven days that followed, which was the Feast of Weeks. And so that's talking about Passover and that week that followed. The Feast of Weeks is the, is the next, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, as, as with many requirements of the law, by Jesus' day, this requirement had been amended to, to require attendance only one time per year for the Passover. Now, you know, the, the Jews by Jesus' day were good at changing a lot of the law. And, and it, you know what? That's not unusual. I mean, Christians do the same thing. We, we try to reduce the things that God requires down to the things that we particularly like and, and try to find ways around the things that we don't. And the Jews were masters of doing this. And, and they had changed the laws in many ways. But at the same time, there was some logic to why they particularly changed this one. Primarily Primarily because there were so many Jews that were now living outside of Palestine by Jesus' day that three times a year was just not feasible anymore. They couldn't make the journey in the same way that they could when everybody was living in the land. But it is to this one required feast that Joseph and Mary now make the journey to Jerusalem, taking their young son Jesus with them. And Luke specifically tells us that Jesus was 12 years old at the time. And this meant that Jesus, as a Jewish boy, would have been coming up close to his bar mitzvah, which is when a Jewish boy formally became what the Jews referred to as a son of the law. A son, not a son-in-law, a son of the law. As, as Matthew, you know, when we think about this, what, what an appropriate thing this is in particular for Jesus to be. Because, you know, it's really accurate because he more than any other Jewish boy will be the very embodiment and the fulfillment of the law. Matthew, as Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 18, Matthew 5, verse 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. You see, Jesus was, was the perfect fulfillment of the law. The law was embodied in him. And so for Jesus to be bar mitzvahed was really appropriate because he truly was a son of the law in the fullest sense of the meaning. But I also want you to note how this reflects Joseph and Mary's devotion to the Lord and to the Lord's law. I mean, they saw it important to their lives personally. In fact, it really speaks highly of Mary, you know, the fact that she's coming along with Joseph to come up to honor this, these, this feast because she wasn't required as a woman to make this journey, and yet she chose to do it. She wanted to be there, and so she comes along as well. And so it speaks highly of Joseph and Mary that they would come and follow what the law required, but we expect nothing less from them, do we? God knew their hearts. He chose them to to parent Jesus, to entrust Jesus to them. And so, you know, here they're displaying their devotion to the Lord. Well, look at verse 43. When they had finished the day, stop right there for a minute. People who came to Jerusalem in observance of this feast typically came in groups. 
And they remained in the city anywhere from two to seven days. And the feast, like I said before, it originally lasted for eight days, the one day day Passover being followed by the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it was an eight-day period, but typically they'd stay anywhere from two to seven days for the feast, and they would travel as a group, lots of people coming together from those different communities. And so keep that in mind because it's going to be important to what happens next. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother Mary did not know it. Hmm. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. This, this, this event gives a whole new meaning to being left behind, doesn't it? I mean, our home alone is even better. I mean, it's, you just imagine this conversation, Mary, I, Mary saying, you know, Joseph, I, I just keep feeling like I forgot something. Joseph, did you, did you remember to pack up and bring the matzos? Yeah, I have that. Well, did you remember to turn in the reins to the camel that we rented? Yeah, I did that. Did you remember to douse the campfire? Yeah, that, that's probably it. It, it was the, it, it probably was the fire. I didn't douse it. Wait. No, that's not it. Jesus! We left Jesus! <laughs> Just imagine this. Now, now, we laugh, you know, because this is, how could this happen? How could a, a good dad or a good mom do this? How could they lose track of their kids? Well, actually, it's, it's not as bizarre a situation as it might seem at first to our 21st century minds. Remember, the, the pilgrims to these feasts, as I mentioned earlier, they, they traveled in, in large caravans. I mean, entire families went together. I mean, relatives, they went up there. And, and even though I pointed to Mary's devotion, it didn't mean that women didn't go along. They did, and they often kind of separated out. The men traveled in, in groups together. The women were traveling in another, I mean, not separate caravan, the whole caravan, but they hung out together. The men would hang out together, the ladies would hang out together, and the children would hang out and they would play together. And it wouldn't be unusual to lose track of them for a bit. You know, I, I remember back, I was sharing this morning with the other group that I remember back when I was a kid, my mom had 18 brothers and sisters. And when they had reunions and, and got together, man, we're talking about hundreds of people. And the ladies would go off, the men would go off, and us kids, man, we would just roam the hillsides. We would just go into the woods. We'd just go all over the place. And we were there all day. And our parents, I mean, it was easy to lose, lose track. It just was. And in this case, it's probably even more logical because probably Joseph thought that Jesus was with Mary. And then when he found Mary and wasn't with her, Mary probably thought Jesus was with Joseph. And Joseph saying, I don't got him. But he wasn't with them, either of them. And then they began to frantically search for him, which is understandable as well. But they're now they're a day into the journey by the time they realize this. Now, note one other thing. That's important in this verse. Note here, and I'm going to connect something for you a little bit later, but note here that it says, and Joseph, underline that in your Bible, Joseph, and his mother, underline his mother, did not know it. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. Why is that important? Well, note something. Mary is referred to as Jesus' mother, but Joseph is not equally referred to as his father. Why? Because he's not. Because he's not. 
Jesus is of divine conception. Mary absolutely gives physical birth to Jesus, but Joseph plays no role in that. Now, it doesn't mean that Joseph isn't going to be Jesus' adoptive father to care for him. Absolutely he will, but Joseph is not his dad. And so the Holy Spirit here is being very precise. It's, he's being very precise in the Scriptures. And, and that's what the Spirit does. He crosses every T and he dots every I in the Scriptures because they're important. Look on at verse 46. Now, so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Their search for Jesus, their frantic search for Jesus, takes them three days. Three days. This includes their one-day travel away from Jerusalem. Typically, these caravans left Jerusalem, and they stopped at a town called Beeroth, which was about eight to ten miles from Jerusalem, and they would stop in that town for the night. And so the normal distance of that journey on the first day was about 20 miles. And this is the point where they would have realized that Jesus was not with them. And then there would have been a one-day journey back the next day to go find him. And then, a, and then another day is obviously added here as they search for Jesus. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.